0: If you have your Bible with you this morning, please open it up to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. We will be in verses 35 through 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for revealing your Son Jesus to us, and we ask that this morning you would move mightily in this congregation through the power of your word. We pray this in his name. Amen. Consider how many different types of questions there are. A good teacher will often use a probing question with a student to help guide that student to a better understanding of a subject. In the courtroom, Lawyers will sometimes use leading questions to try and guide a witness's testimony to an answer that that lawyer is looking for. Orators often use something called a rhetorical question. These are questions that aren't really meant to be answered, but are meant to grab our attention or make a point. But in each of these types of questions, the questioner is trying to communicate something with clarity. Riddles, on the other hand, are different. If you've read J.R.R. R. Tolkien's classic book, The Hobbit, you might recall this riddle This thing all things devours birds, beasts, trees, flowers, gnaws iron, bites steel, grinds hard stones to meal, slays king, ruins town, and beats mountain down. The book's main character bet his life on his ability to solve this puzzling question? The answer? It's time. Riddles are designed to be hard to understand, so if you didn't get that one, that's okay. They're often formed in such a way that they require a great deal of cleverness or ingenuity to figure out. To put it another way, the riddle is designed to make the answer accessible only to those who have the ability to see through it. In today's text we see Jesus asking his audience what we can only identify as a form of a riddle. Now the word riddle might bring to mind childish games or, if you've been around Sean much, bad puns. But this riddle, like many of Jesus' parables, is something very serious. Jesus is using this question both to expose the spiritual blindness of the scribes and to reveal an incredible truth about who he is. Now recall that we've come to a place in Mark's gospel where we see Jesus repeatedly being questioned by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. The questions that they've asked him have been designed to evaluate Jesus, to test Jesus, and to trap Jesus. First, we had the chief priests who came with the scribes and the elders to challenge Jesus' authority to teach. In response, Jesus presented them with a simple question that so exposed their wicked motives and their fear of man that they were forced, embarrassingly, to leave him alone, to, to back out of their challenge. Next, the Pharisees and the Herodians, both political enemies, They plotted to undermine Jesus' popularity by asking him a very divisive political question. Should Jews pay taxes to Caesar? Recall that Jesus' answer left them utterly stunned. Next, the Sadducees came to him with a question crafted to make the idea of the resurrection look absurd. In response, Jesus spoke to them with authority about the nature of resurrection... And he did so by reciting one verse from Scripture that they had overlooked. In doing so, he unraveled their entire argument. And then finally, last Sunday, we saw one of the scribes come up to Jesus and ask him a challenging question. Teacher, which commandment of the law is greatest? Jesus' answer was so profound that it finally silenced his opposition. Verse 34b tells us, And after that, no one dared to ask Him any more questions. In today's text, the tables have turned, and Jesus has become the questioner. Let's look at verse 35. Jesus begins by asking this, How can the scribes say the Christ is the Son of David? Now this title, Son of David, This was a well-known term used to describe the Messiah. You see, the Jews of Jesus' day, they recognized that God works in history. They knew that God had saved the people of Israel from out of Egypt. They knew that He had led the people of Israel from the desert into the Promised Land, and He'd given them kings. They knew that God, in His judgment, had sent His people into exile. And then most recently in their history, They knew that God had allowed this Roman pagan empire to dominate and rule over the people of Israel. Woven throughout this understanding of history, the Jews also understood that God was working through covenants with his people. These covenants were agreements that God graciously came down and entered into with his people, and through which he would ultimately save them. Now, one of these covenants, a covenant made between God and King David of Israel through the prophet prophet Nathan, was known as the Davidic covenant. And this covenant contained a promise to David that the Messiah, which is just another word for Christ, would come through David's family tree, through his biological descendants, through his offspring. And this Messiah would establish a kingdom that would endure forever. So the people, the Jewish people living under Roman rule, who very much did not want to be living under Roman rule, who very much wanted a return to the good old days of having King David rule over them, this title, Son of David, it meant more than just being related to David. It was a title for the king that they so desperately We're hoping God would bring them in their lifetime. This title, Son of David, was part of the redemptive story that God was working through history through the Jewish people. Jesus was and Jesus is this King. In fact, Jesus has already been identified as the Son of David twice in Mark's Gospel. Recall in Mark chapter 10, the blind man Bartimaeus called out to Jesus saying, Son of David, have mercy on me. In chapter 11, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey in his triumphal entry, his onlookers cried out, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. So why is Jesus asking how the Messiah could be the son of David. Well, if we look in verse thirty-six, we'll see that Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament. The quotation he's using here is the first verse of Psalm one ten. This psalm was written by David himself, and this psalm was known among all of, Jude- of Jesus's Jewish audience as pointing forward to the reign of this promised Messiah, to this king, to this son of David. In Greek and English translations, the psalm begins like this, with two words. It says, The Lord said to my Lord. Now, that's in the Greek and the English translations. The Lord said to my Lord. In the original Hebrew, however, this first Lord, in this first verse is the name Yahweh. It is the divine name of the triune God of Israel. This is the name that God uses of himself when he speaks to Moses from a burning bush in the Old Testament. The Jewish people, out of a combination of reverence and superstition, had long ago decided that it was wrong even to utter this divine name. And instead, they replaced the divine name with Lord in their scriptures. And this is why you'll sometimes see in your English translations of your Bible a capital L-O-R-D in the Old Testament, which is indicating that this divine name, Yahweh, is being used. Now the second Lord in this verse, this Lord is the Messiah. Now none of the Jews in Jesus' day would have had any problem referring to the Messiah, the man who would be raised up by God from the lineage of David as their new king. They would have had no problem at all referring to him as their Lord. But Jesus is asking something else. Look at verse 37. Jesus says, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Jesus is asking how it is that David, looking forward through eyes that only the Spirit of God could inspire him with, seeing this promised descendant, how is it possible that David could call this future child his Lord? Keep in mind, this is in a culture where it was always the child who revered his elders, It was never the other way around. This is fundamentally backwards to Jesus' audience. So the riddle Jesus has presented is, it's really nothing more than two scriptural truths that just don't seem to go together. They seem to contradict even. Yet Jesus knows that like him, the scribes and his Jewish audience recognize Scripture as the inspired Word of God. He even goes a step further and reminds them that David wrote this inspired and led by the Holy Spirit, which means this can't be a contradiction. This cannot be an error because God doesn't make errors. God cannot lie. Now, how then can these two truths of Scripture be reconciled together? I'm going to return to this question later on. But for the moment, I want to draw your attention to what Jesus is doing here. These scribes that Jesus is speaking of, they were supposed to be experts in God's law. If anyone should have known what the scriptures had to say about this promised son of David, it was them. They should have had all the facts. They should have clearly understood who it was God was sending, what the signs would be, what he would look like, what his titles would be. They should have known. So Jesus is asking a question of them, and he's pulling that question from Scripture, the very thing that these scribes have dedicated their professional lives to knowing and teaching. And his question, as simple as it is, as simple as it seems, is completely beyond their ability to answer. I want you to notice that there is no response from the scribes recorded here in this account. You see, the scribes denied Jesus' ministry. They denied that he was the Messiah. They denied that he was the Son of David. They didn't deny him these titles because of something they saw in the scripture, but because of the blinding power of their own spiritual pride and arrogance. Jesus is using his question in this text, this riddle, to expose that spiritual blindness. He is checking the pride of these scribes. And by asking a question from the scripture that, they're supposed to know so much about, that they're supposed to be experts in. He's making them look inept and foolish as supposed experts in the law. What about the crowd? This great throng who heard him gladly, Scripture says. Well, I don't think they're glad because they're grasping the deepest theological truths of who Jesus is. I suspect that most of them are simply enjoying seeing these scribes be humiliated in the temple. See, this crowd, they may believe Jesus is the Messiah, but this crowd is looking for a Messiah who will raise up an army and overthrow the Roman rule of God's people. They're not looking for a Messiah who would be raised up on a Roman cross to suffer on behalf of God's people. What the scribes and what the crowd have in common is their pride. Jesus is the answer to his own question. These men are literally standing before him, looking into the eyes of the answer to the riddle. And yet they refuse to see Jesus For who he is. This kind of pride, this blinding power of pride, can be deadly. If you're sitting here today and you believe yourself to be a Christian, know that you are not granted immunity from this type of pride, this blinding power that it can have over us. The sin of pride is a particularly hard thing for us to detect on our own. After all, how are we supposed to see pride in ourselves when pride warps the way we see ourselves? A Christian who is finding success in his or her walk with Christ is at particular risk for this sin. After winning battles with temptation or making progress in spiritual disciplines like daily prayer and study of the Scripture, a maturing Christian can easily, far too easily, Develop too high an opinion of his or herself. One Christian author describes our self perception as being as accurate as the image reflected back at us when we look into a carnival mirror. I think there's truth in that. Brothers and sisters, listen carefully. Pride is the heart of all of our sins. And there is no sin more offensive to God than pride. So today as we read about Jesus' question and his interaction with the crowds and with the scribes, we would be wise to view this humbling of Jesus' adversaries not as an occasion to celebrate the ways that we are different from them, but as an opportunity opportunity to repent of the ways that were similar to them. To help with this, I'd like to offer three questions. These three questions are derived from the behavior of the scribes and the way Jesus responds to them. And I think they can be helpful in us identifying pride within our own hearts. Question number one. Do you submit to Jesus as he has revealed himself to be? Or do you force Jesus to submit to the desires of your own heart? The history of the Christian church is littered with the wreckage of individuals and pastors and churches and denominations that have abandoned the Jesus of Scripture. And they've replaced him with a fictional Messiah. A Messiah who serves their own desires. And the own their, their own prideful hearts. There are even churches today in this city who this very morning would tell you That if you're faithful to Jesus, he will bless you with a big house, with a better paycheck, with a Mercedes instead of a Toyota or a Ford Focus. There are churches in this city who preach a Jesus that demands nothing difficult of his followers, nothing costly from his disciples, They preach that this Jesus approves of flagrant, habitual sin. There are other churches in this city who preach that Jesus' forgiveness is not a free gift for sinners, but something you have to earn through good works. Brothers and sisters, these are lies. These are false messiahs. And there's something every single one of these false messiahs has in common. that you can't find them in Scripture. The teachers who promote these false messiahs, they'll try and justify their teaching by twisting Scripture. And when Scripture too clearly contradicts them, they'll claim that Scripture is in error and that it's up to us, more specifically, it's up to them to determine which parts of God's Word are true and which parts of God's Word are false and we need to leave behind. In the end, these false teachers have put their sinful, prideful hearts above God's truth, and it's blinded them. If there are aspects of Scripture that you find challenging, you're not alone. The question is this. Do you respond as the scribes do, by pridefully rejecting what you don't like or what you don't understand about the way Jesus has revealed Himself? Or do you approach these challenging teachings of Scripture with a humble heart, submitting to what God has revealed? Question number two. Like the scribes seeking to derail Christ's ministry, are you quick to notice the deficiencies and the sins of others, but rarely willing to speak honestly of your own sins? How often do you find yourself noting the sins of other Christians in the church? Do you keep tallies of those sins? Are you walking around with a mental Rolodex, filing away the sins of your your brother or your sister? Don't misunderstand me. We should all be ready and willing to correct one another in love when we see sin manifest itself in one one another's lives. But how much more time and energy comparatively do you spend looking at the sins of others versus the sins in your own heart? Are you quick to confess your sins before your brother or your sister in Christ? What about when you're the one being corrected or criticized? Is your immediate response to go into defense mode? Because spiritual pride will always be the first to defend you when you're criticized. finally question number 3 the scribes being jealous of jesus sought to undermine his popularity to derail his ministry are you likewise driven by a desire for attention the contributions that you make to conversations always seem to steer things back to yourself when others are speaking Are you listening to what that person is saying? Or in your mind, are you already crafting that response that you're going to have ready for when they just stop talking? Are you just waiting for them to stop talking so it can be your turn? Our love of self is so natural to us as sinners. Even as Christians who have the Spirit of God working in our heart and transforming us day by day, we are so easily steered back to self-love. Because of this, we should be particularly careful of things like social media, which is really built to encourage and reward shameless self-love and self-promotion. The approval and adoration of our peers that we get from things like this can so easily become an idol. And what looks like a harmless Facebook post might in fact be feeding a sinful sense of pride. If these questions have pricked your conscience, if you feel or see some aspect of yourself in any of the things that I've said this morning, I want you to know that there are ways to fight this battle against our pride. In fact, I'm going to give you three ways. Three questions, three ways. Number one, if you want to avoid letting pride warp your view of who Jesus is, you have to submit to who Christ has revealed himself to be. And that means turning to the word as your ultimate source of authority. When Jesus humbled the scribes by forming a question from scripture, he did so based on a single word. Lord. Lord. How does David call his son Lord? This speaks to the authority and the trustworthiness of God's Word. As Christians, we should always have a healthy skepticism of the desires of our own hearts. We should always be ready and inclined to turn back to Scripture so that we don't reinvent Jesus after our own image. Number two. If you want to avoid thinking too highly of yourself, spend time meditating on the attributes of God. When we consider God in all of His power, sovereignty, and majesty, it's impossible not to recognize our own weakness, our own frailty, and sinfulness, and fragility. The study of God's nature and character Can help us recalibrate our sense of self. Now, don't get me wrong, we are valuable. Each one of us has an inherent dignity and worth. But that's because God has put His image in us. What are we other than dust plus the image of God? What do we have to be prideful about? Finally, Spend time reflecting on the fact that nothing you have comes from you. As a Christian, are you experiencing spiritual growth? Are you seeing progress in resisting temptation? Are you seeing an increased affection for God's Word or desire to obey Him? Remember that these are the fruits of God working within you. These are not products of your own autonomous will. You didn't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps to make this happen. Consider what Paul tells the Corinthians. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Now, let us return to Jesus' riddle. Jesus has pointed out that Scripture teaches that the Messiah would be the son of David. And he's also pointed out that Scripture teaches that the Messiah is David's Lord. How can these two truths be reconciled? Well, with any other human being, this would be impossible. But Jesus is not like any other human being. I want you to consider for a second. Imagine the setting that we're in in today's text. Imagine being a witness to Jesus' interaction with these religious leaders thus far. Imagine watching the greatest religious experts in Israel publicly challenge this popular teacher and come up empty-handed. These were men who memorized the entire Torah in their youths. These were the academic, the political, the social elites of their culture. And when they set out to stump Jesus evaluate him, to humiliate him, they got nothing. Imagine the amazement of watching this man, this apparently untrained carpenter from somewhere in Galilee or Nazareth, respond to his adversaries with such spiritual wisdom and insight that they marveled at him and they became too afraid to ask him any more questions. I think like the religious leaders that he interacted with we would be forced to ask of Jesus and admit of Jesus that no one ever spoke like this man over and over again he demonstrates that he's different than the ones around him he's unlike any man that's ever lived Over and over again, we are forced as readers of the text to consider the question his disciples asked when they watched him calm the storm at sea. What sort of man is this? Now when David wrote his psalm, I think it's likely that he had only a dim understanding of how his words might be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He knew the Messiah that God had promised, would be more than just his physical descendant. But that spiritual insight was just a shadow of the truth that would be fully revealed in Jesus. As we gather here today as a church, we possess that full revelation. And because we possess it, we have the ability to answer Jesus' riddle. The Messiah is both the Son of David and David's Lord because the Messiah is fully God and fully man. The second person of the Trinity, the eternal word of God, added to himself a human nature. The humanity of Jesus can be seen throughout Scripture. He was born with a real human body as a real baby. He grew. He learned. At times he became tired and he would sleep. We see him at times in scripture becoming hungry and eating. When he was pierced on the cross, he bled. He didn't become like a man. He wasn't God putting on a man costume and walking around pretending to be like us. Jesus was fully man. But why did God have to become man? as the son of David. God became man because he chose to perfectly fulfill the demands of his law that he placed upon mankind. Those demands that we could never fulfill. Recall that the first man, Adam, who served as the head of our entire race, fell infinitely short of this standard in his disobedience to God. The result was condemnation for all mankind. And we have followed in his footsteps every day of our lives. But Jesus was a better Adam. And through his perfect life, his human life, the demands of the law were satisfied. And through faith in Jesus, his perfect life and righteousness can be credited to us as if we lived it ourselves. Jesus also became a man so that he could suffer and die on behalf of sinful humans like us. And through that death, the perfect justice of God was satisfied on him. Because he died in our place, the debt that we owed God as sinners has been paid in full. Yet at the same time, this human Messiah remained fully God. John speaks of Jesus as the Logos, which translates into English as the Word. In the first verse of his gospel, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus forgave sins, pointing to the fact that he was the one offended by those sins. Thomas, seeing the risen Jesus, cried out to him, my Lord and my God. And he was commended for his belief. Paul writes of Jesus that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. As much as it bends the limits of our minds to even try to understand this, the powerful king of the universe, the creator of life itself, stepped down into his creation And he humbled himself to the point of suffering and dying as a human being at the hands of other human beings that he had molded from the dust. This is how the son of David can also be David's Lord. But what does this mean for us? Why would we need to reflect on the Incarnation? Why do we need all this theology about who Jesus is and how He's two natures in one person? How how does this have any relevance or bearing on our lives today? Well, if you're a Christian, one thing that sets you apart from the rest of the world is the way your sins affect you. Because of the lingering effects of our fallen nature, we will never be completely free of sin in this life. Not on this side of eternity, but as the Holy Spirit renews our heart and our mind. He's going to change our view of our own sin. You'll find that you begin to love God's law and hate, despise your own wicked inclinations. And when you do sin, you're much more likely to experience grief and even pain over your unfaithfulness to your Savior. As a maturing Christian grows more and more in his or her understanding of the holiness and the worthiness and the goodness of God. You can't help but to grow in your understanding of the evil and the selfishness and the wickedness of our sins. You can't help but to recognize that Every sin that you are aware of in your heart is part and parcel of what nailed Jesus to the cross. The result of this can be grief, and that grief can become crippling. But that grief has its remedy in Jesus The Incarnation shows us the work of God in Christ to bridge the enormous chasm between us and our Creator. Through Christ, that barrier and that distance has been removed between us and God. And when Jesus stooped down and became a man, He took on the role of a shepherd, of a husband and a brother to us. This means that you can turn to Him with all of your burdens, with all of your grief, and with all of your suffering. Remember that Christ as a man experienced real temptation. Hebrews chapter 4 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows what it is to suffer temptation. Don't fear turning to Him with your grief. Bring your pain and the burden of your sins boldly before the throne of His grace. And you will find mercy and you will find comfort for your soul. One author and pastor puts it this way. He is flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone for this reason that we might go boldly to him. Maybe your suffering this morning is not over your sins but the sins of this world. Maybe you're grieved over the death of a loved one. Maybe you're suffering through a Difficult or debilitating physical illness. Maybe you've been hurt by someone you love. Maybe you've been hurt by the church. Take comfort in knowing that Christ, as a man, knows suffering intimately. He's experienced abandonment. He's wept over the death of a loved one. He has felt horrific physical pain. And he has cried out in agony to God. So when you bring these burdens before Christ, you will not be met by a cold or an indifferent God. You will be met by a God who personally knows every pain that comes from living a life in this fallen world. The son of David is a mighty king, but he's also a great physician of souls. Turn to him with your pain and you will find comfort. And finally, maybe you don't suffer from the grief of your own sin. Not because you suffer more from the grief of this world, but maybe because your heart has been hardened. Maybe you sit here today an unbeliever. If you're not a Christian, I want you to listen carefully. No matter what you do, Christ has authority over your life, just as He does over the life of a Christian. If you choose to turn away from your sin and trust in Him, He will be faithful to forgive you. You will find him to be a gentle and compassionate king. His perfect life will be credited to you. and Your past sins will be drowned in the bottomless ocean of his grace. But, if like the scribes, you reject Christ in your pride, you will be humbled just as they were. You will not find him to be a mediator or a shepherd or a husband. You will find him to be a righteous and powerful king. Recall the verse that Jesus recited in today's text. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Apart from the free gift of his grace apart from Christ you will be the enemy that God reduces to a footstool under his son's feet so if you are not a christian or you're not sure that you're a christian this morning i encourage you to consider this carefully jesus's riddle has been answered he is the promised king of god's people What kind of king will you find the son of David to be when you stand before him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the mystery and the beauty of the incarnation. That by humbling himself, Christ dying for our sake made a way to be reconciled to you. And that sitting at your right hand the son of David, is ruling even now. We pray, Lord, that he would rule over our hearts and that through the power of your word they would continue to be transformed. In his name we pray, amen.